Welcome to The Socialist Program. This is the audio of our monthly seminar. Subscribe and support this programming at patreon.com slash the socialist program to join live once a month and ask Brian Becker your questions and listen to them as soon as they come out. Thanks so much for your help in keeping this independent show going. We can make this program with you, but not without you. I'd like to start with Afghanistan because it is the one year anniversary since the end of the war. I was on a show last night. It's called The Heat. It's a TV show. It's on CGTN, the English language Chinese global TV network. And it was about the one year anniversary. And it was a half an hour program. CGTN did a seven minute video with this guy who's I can't remember his name, Sean, somebody. But he used to be in the U.S. Diplomatic Corps. He was in Afghanistan a long time. He was one of the panelists, along with myself, on the show. But the way the show opened was with a seven-minute video of him talking to Afghan civilians around the country about what things were like one year later. And the thing that everyone says to him is that they feel at peace, meaning they have security. And of course, for everyone, security is so vital. People don't feel like they're going to be shot. They're going to be kidnapped. They're going to be targeted by a drone strike. There is real a sense of security, but there is growing a growing wave of real malnutrition and hunger based on the fact that the international community following the the so-called international community following the lead of the United States has, for the most part, cut off all ties with Afghanistan or refuse to allow Afghanistan to integrate into the world economy or have gone along quietly with the sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on Afghanistan. And also the U.S. took all of Afghan's foreign assets, all of its foreign reserves, all the money that it had in Western banks, about $9 billion. And the U.S. seized that money and won't give it back. And it won't give it back on the basis, on the pretext that the U.S., there's two pretexts. One is about the issue of international terrorism, but that's not the main point that the U.S. is making. The main point is that the Taliban in power is carrying out, as would be expected, sadly, tragically, new restrictions on the rights of girls to go to school. So on the basis of protecting women's rights and girls' rights and the rights of girls to have full access to education, the U.S. won't release Afghan funds to Afghanistan, won't allow Afghanistan to trade or receive aid from others. And so literally, and as this seven-minute video at the beginning of the show perfectly outlines and portrays in the most heart-wrenching way, Afghan girls and boys, Afghan kids are literally starving to death right now, literally starving to death because they're cut off from all resources. The Afghan government, before it basically collapsed in the face of the U.S. withdrawal, it was already a very corrupt government. It was already dependent largely on international aid. But now that all international aid has been cut or curtailed, the people in Afghanistan are starving to death and the U.S. just doesn't care. And I think that for those of us in the anti-war movement, those of us in the socialist movement, those of us who politically oppose imperialism and politically oppose, of course, the reactionary policies of the Taliban, 
we should be making our voices heard very loudly and very clearly that the effort by the U.S. to strangle Afghanistan on the pretext of protecting Afghan civilians and girls and women in particular is, in fact, just nothing other than collective punishment against the people of Afghanistan for having defeated the U.S. occupation. And the other thing, the little video, the seven minute video shows very clearly. And this guy is again, he's a former U.S. diplomat, so he's not like a radical person, the one who's making the movie and narrating the movie. He shows that all of the people in Afghanistan, including the opponents of the Taliban, they all talk about the U.S. NATO forces as occupation forces. And one last thing about Afghanistan before we leave this topic is that 250,000 Afghans died between 2001 and 2021, according to the Watson Institute, which has that program called The Cost of War. It's at Brown University. Brown University, one of the Ivy League schools, Watson Institute. Go online today and look at the Cost of War website because they're not a left force. They're not a radical force. They're not an anti-imperialist group, but they've been keeping tabs on casualties. 241,000 Afghans died. 70,000 of them were civilians since 2001. And the number of U.S. military deaths, U.S. troop deaths between the Iraq occupation and the Afghan occupation was 7,000. And that's a lot. And by the way, that's only a minuscule part of the U.S. casualties, because while only 7,000 or as many as 7,000 died in combat, 30,000 members of the U.S. armed forces who fought in Afghanistan or Iraq took their own lives when they came back. 30,000 suicides. I mean, really such an indicator of something, something terrible. But when you look at those statistics and you think the U.S. spent $2 trillion, 240,000 Afghans dead, 7,000 U.S. military personnel, 70,000 civilians in Afghanistan dead, the U.S. leaves. And then on the pretext of helping girls and helping women, the U.S. cuts off all access to resources. So those same civilians will now starve to death and, in fact, are starving to death. I mean, this is a real crime against humanity. It's kind of a slow motion genocide against the Afghan civilians and gives lie to the idea that the U.S. was ever really committed to human rights or democratic rights or women's rights or girls' rights or nation building. None of that is true. This was just another exercise in imperial power. They couldn't succeed against the Taliban. So Biden decided to end it, which is good, but it's bad that the U.S. is now using all of its economic power to collectively punish the Afghan people who can be understood as nothing other than victims from this whole enterprise. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Well, we did get a question about the anti-war movement. Maybe that would be good to take up here. So this is from Will Poor. What opportunities, if any, do we foresee for a significant U.S. anti-war movement, given the global economic impact of sanctions? On a related note, is the high level of U.S. corporate state media pro-war propaganda so pervasive that it is, at least for now, impossible to counter to any significant extent? It's very hard right now. I mean, we're trying to do the best that we can, but we have to have a realistic 
understanding of where we are in the political terrain. The U.S. military doctrine and the U.S. foreign policy, and the two, of course, dovetail, is designed to make sure that all of the bleeding and suffering of any conflict that the U.S. has initiated, has provoked, or is engaged in, all the suffering and bleeding is done by non-American forces, meaning people somewhere else. And this is designed to avoid happening what happened during Vietnam and what happened during the second Iraq war. Well, both Iraq wars, but especially the second Iraq war, which is large scale U.S. public intervention against the wars. The U.S. anti-war movement in Vietnam, of course, was a real factor, a dynamic factor in helping to end the war. The U.S. anti-war movement in Iraq was in 2002, 2003, was something unprecedented. Millions of people, literally millions and millions of people in the United States, joined by tens of millions around the world, went into the streets opposing a war before it even started. But that was because in both instances, in case of the United States, U.S. soldiers were going to Vietnam and they were going to die in Vietnam. They were going to kill people and be killed in Vietnam. It was an actual war. Same with the Iraq war. And so public opinion was engaged in the United States. But the Pentagon stopped the draft. It stopped the conscripted army. It relied on a volunteer army. So it's about 1% of the population in the United States who was either in the U.S. military or are family members of the U.S. military. Maybe it's 2%. I don't know, but it's not much. And that way, the rest of the population, the 98%, is kind of kept on the sidelines and then just bombarded with the colorful demonizing rhetoric designed to make everyone hate or fear or both the the targets of U.S. imperial or U.S. military intervention, certainly not to have sympathy with the victims or the targets, and really not to feel directly impacted by all of this imperialist invasion and empire building or empire sustenance around the world. That's really the biggest problem for the anti-war movement. I mean, if you can get the attention of the American people and if you can talk about you know, what's actually going on, when people hear about these stories and they understand the terrible injustice of it, they're moved. Most people are, not everyone, of course, but many, many are, I'd say the majority. But the problem is how to get people's attention when the U.S. media isn't really covering it. And there are not U.S. military personnel who in large numbers whose lives are at stake. That's the biggest problem. That's all for this preview. If you'd like access to the rest of this seminar and our entire archive of exclusive seminars with Brian Becker, become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We are an independent show and we cannot make this programming without you. Thanks so much for your support.